Podcast One. Much ado about COVID. Welcome to the podcast series, More Than Guts. This is a series of educational, non-promotional podcasts on inflammatory bowel disease, which have been organised and funded by Bristol Myers Squibb. This episode is called Much Ado About COVID. Welcome. My name is Dr Nick Kennedy. I'm a consultant gastroenterologist based in Exeter in the southwest of England, and I'm delighted to introduce this podcast on Much Ado About COVID. And we're delighted to be talking to you today about the difficulties that healthcare professionals and patients have encountered during the pandemic and how they've overcome them. I'm joined by a series of excellent guests who are now going to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Kath Stansfield. I'm a consultant nurse at Salford Royal. Hi, I'm Kelly Allison. I'm CEO of a digital communications agency and I'm here as a patient. Hi, I'm Kay Griefson. I'm advanced nurse practitioner in inflammatory bowel disease at the London IBD clinic. Thank you. It's great to have you all here today. We're now going to hand over to Kelly, who's going to tell us about her story. Thanks, Nick. Um, So I've had ulcerative colitis for just under 20 years now, um, and I've been in remission for the past six years. Um, And before that, I have had three major flares which have required hospitalisation. And I just wanted to share my experience of having an active flare during COVID and what that meant for me as a patient. So um, it must have been around the time of the second lockdown, I started feeling the familiar symptoms of what was set to be the start of a flare um at first it was bittersweet because it was great being able to work from home and having 24 7 access to a toilet um ordinarily with my work I'd been traveling um to the US regularly and doing 11 12 hour flights and not thought too much about it but suddenly you realize how vulnerable you were at that particular point and how nice it is to be able to work from home and be able to take conference calls um, on the toilet with on mute with your camera turned off. But it just meant that from as a patient, I was able to continue my daily life as best I could. Um, one of the things that I, I first struggled with was I found it very easy to be able to access primary care appointments, um, so GP appointments, um, and I pretty much got seen the, the that same day. Um, however, there's obviously a limit to what GPs can do in terms of medication. Um, so I then looked to have a consultant's appointment and I found the secondary care appointments almost impossible to be able to access during COVID. Um, So my first point of call was to go to the IBD nurse who in the past had been absolutely fantastic. And I'd always had a response within 24 hours having phoned the, the line and I didn't hear back from them for 10 days which as a patient during the pandemic um, and feeling the pain and the symptoms, you feel quite frightened and quite scared that you then can't get the help that you need. Um, When I did hear back from the IBD nurse, I found out that my gastroenterologist had left the hospital um, and I'd been discharged without my knowledge. Um, So I then had to go through a referral from start to finish, um, which as of today, I've still not heard any communication from um, the hospital or from the GP. So I think one of the things I then had to do was to take my own kind of care into my own hands and to learn about what I could do. And one of the things that really stood out to me was actually the the wealth of information and misinformation that appears online, in particular social media. So I joined lots of different groups um, that look at how you can 
manage your symptoms through diet, through complementary therapies and various different things. And I did manage to get my flare under control. Um, However, it wasn't ideal. And I think it just highlighted the lack of, I suppose, one place that patients know they can go for trusted information. And it made me realise how dangerous some of the information is out there if patients are trying to do extreme diets and various different things without the help of a dietitian. Um, And then I suppose the second part of it is the impact on my mental health. So I'm a very strong career driven woman who stops at nothing. And I suddenly found that you know, my my traveling days were suddenly over and I was at home. But actually, post-pandemic, it's been really stressful trying to get back into everyday life. Um, you know, tra- starting to travel back to the US again, um, even traveling into London, for example, it makes you feel vulnerable that you aren't near a toilet and all those things that you didn't even take into consideration before are now worry and anxiety on top. And I think that's something that HEPs can definitely Um, or do definitely need to be aware of in how they're treating their patients post-pandemic. Thank you very much. Thanks for sharing uh, the experiences you've had during the pandemic. It's clearly been very difficult at times, but there have also been some advantages in terms of the ability to work from home that might not have been there before. We can talk more about that shortly. I think it's been quite a journey for um, IBD during the pandemic from the sort of early period where we were concerned uh, about the risk our patients might face. Uh, we came had to come up with guidance very quickly uh, two years ago uh, now um, on the basis of limited data from Italy and uh, China and on the basis of our understanding of how other diseases like uh, pneumonia and flu uh, behaved in people with IBD and on IBD medications. And I think the, the story over the last couple of years of the data has been one of reassurance for the most part that actually our patients aren't at greater risk than the rest of the population and that most of the medications, perhaps with the exception of steroids, don't pose an increased risk of severe outcomes from COVID, although some of them may have an impact on uh, vaccine responses. Um, so I think it's um, been, a, as I said, mostly a story of reassurance from that perspective. And it's really important we then communicate that and uh, with to our patients. Uh, in terms of the points you've raised um, during uh, your story, um, clearly one of the key points there was around your access to secondary care during the pandemic and the fact that you found it very difficult to uh, maintain the, that access that you'd had um, previously. It sounds like some of those factors may have been pandemic related and some of them may have been separate issues. Um, but if I could ask um, the IBD nurses um, what your experience was of trying to run an IBD uh, helpline and IBD services early on in the pandemic. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's extremely tricky to start with because it just seemed even though it was all in the news about what was going to happen it seemed to be pretty much overnight that things changed and that we went into lockdown and I just remember our volume of IBD advice line calls at least 100% more we were we were usually you know we were getting about 150 phone calls a day when normally we'd maybe be getting 30 to 40 maximum in addition to that, a lot of the team were redeployed and also the information, as Nick said, the information that we had early on was very limited. So people were understandably ringing the advice line for all sorts of information regarding COVID and just their risk factors. 
But then we were limited at the start as to what information we could actually give. And then also the fact that we had a lot of staff that were not in the department because people got redeployed. It was just very, very tricky time, to be honest. And so it was just more, I don't know what you think, Kath, but from our experience, it was just the volume of calls was quite overwhelming to deal with. In addition to your regular work that you would normally be doing as an IBD nurse, you know, you had this sudden influx of calls and you're trying to manage them the best way you can and I know just from the IBD nurse network that we've got in the UK everybody found it difficult and, and some people actually weren't able to manage the advice line at all and weren't able to actually operate one because of the demanding other services so it was yeah it's tricky and, and I think um, most of us found that that yeah you know um, I think the sheer speed mm. even though we you would sit at home and we watched the news and we saw everything unfolding you didn't quite expect it to unfold to the level that it did and there was kind of like a, I think I remember very first lockdown there was about 10 days where was it going to be an issue or wasn't it and what should we do and those kind of things we got no guidance at all because there wasn't any because there was no precedent had been set to how services should be maintained or supported during those times and I think personally it tra traumatic mm -hmm. kind of we were I was in the department from seven in the morning till 11 12 in an evening trying to make sense but I think the underpinning thing was trying to keep the patients safe mm. because my services ran for 15 years and literally it felt overnight it was being dismantled. And actually, that's all I've spent my life doing. And that's what we wanted to maintain and to happen. Um, so I think it, 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 it was really catastrophic the changes that were made, really. So, you, um, so I understand, Kelly, where you're coming from in terms of navigating it because from the other side we also struggled to navigate and make sense of everything because nothing was the same as it had been previously. I think it's been difficult as well to always provide national guidance on this because primary care and secondary care services have faced different pressures in different parts of the country and I think in some places it's been very difficult to get through to a GP in some places it's been very difficult to get through to the IBD helpline unfortunately of course in some places both will have applied which makes it challenging. Um, I think Crohn's and Colitis UK have played a key role uh, in communicating with patients through the pandemic. Um, I was part of the group that tried to get together guidance with limited information very early on back in March 2020 and Crohn's Colitis UK were involved in that very early so that anything we were putting out to the healthcare professionals they were also going to have a patient facing version of on their website and that we could try and have consistent messaging. I think for the most part we achieved that pretty well uh, and we had things like the risk tool which um, helped uh, patients and healthcare professionals understand how um, their risk fitted in with the guidance as it was at the time around shielding and so forth. Um, do you think the shielding side of things, um, were, were you encouraged to shield Kelly during the pandemic? And if so, how, how was that sort of when you received that guidance? So that I think that was a challenge as well, Nick, because the communication was um, was varied depending on where you got it from. Um, so I didn't receive the official um, request to shield. However, my GP was then telling me that I should be shielding. So in that respect, you're not quite sure what guidance you need to listen to. Um, I did get early access to the vaccines, which I obviously took. Um, 
but yeah I think that that crossover of information is very difficult to navigate sometimes as a patient yeah and you, you mentioned earlier about sort of there being a lot of misinformation out there on the internet as well and it being important to know where you could turn um, particularly if you're also having difficulty accessing your own um, healthcare providers um, in terms of um, the difficulties we talked about earlier, did, did both of you have significant redeployment of your IBD nurses to other parts of the service as well? So then as well as having this increased demand, you had reduced number of staff available. Is that something you had? Definitely. All, all of the team were. So at one point, um, there was myself and one gastroenterologist running all of the clinics. So I ran all of the nurse clinics, um, everything. So it was, it was, it was tough. But with what you said before about Crohn's and Colitis UK, Nick, that was the information that they had on their website was just invaluable. And I think a lot of IBD nurses signposted our patients to that because it was the most up-to-date information. It was reputable. It had everything that, that, that patients needed, really. I mean, I don't know whether you did that, Kath, as well. Yeah, I mean... My team was affected by shielding as well. So we had two yeah. members of the team who became home workers. Um, and it's really interesting to watch how, because we've tried to do home working because in the NHS we have a bit of a problem with, with space for years. But suddenly overnight laptops appeared and people became home workers, which was invaluable for running the helpline. Um, so... There was essentially there was me and a part-time nurse that was left in the office um, and the rest of the team was redeployed and that included the medics as mm. well. Um, so that was like a massive, massive challenge because all of a sudden you had to really believe in what believe in what you've said has, has been okay. So a clinical advice where you'd maybe go and speak to a consultant, that consultant was no longer there. Um, so that was quite a challenge and I think trying to unpick all that information so that I knew that I was making the right decisions for my patients with no team when you've worked in a team for so long um, that Crohn's Colitis UK and, and the BSG guidelines really were invaluable. But even then, trying to convince people because of the misinformation that's been given across primary and secondary care. So I'm going, no, you don't need to shield, but a GP might have told you you needed to shield. And then you were having to actually, you know, Photoshop out of some guidelines. No, Luke, you don't have to shield. Um, it was just so labour intensive for a period of time that actually didn't you didn't need it. Definitely. I mean, I think we, we, adapt, we were in the process perhaps of doing this anyway, but we adapted our helpline so that there was a a phone menu on there which obviously is a bit frustrating to navigate but it did mean that we could try and ensure that the calls that were asking about you know when's my next appointment could be redirected to an admin member of staff rather than taking up nursing time but also if people were calling for generic guidance around um, COVID we could direct them to the Crohn's and Colitis UK uh, website and elsewhere and I think it, it's been uh, there's been an acceleration, perhaps, of use of technology, some, some, sometimes fairly basic technology. It's been around for quite a long time like that um, during the pandemic uh, in terms of trying to ensure that um, we can make the best of limited resources in a time of difficulty. Is that something you would say happened in your organisation as well, that there was a sort of rapid adoption of technologies? Definitely. Um, same thing, you know, that we've been speaking about doing remote working and video calling for patients, um, consultants doing telephone clinics. And all of a sudden, it just seemed to 
magically happen. You know what things are like usually. It takes going through this panel and that panel and this committee and then all of a sudden, boom, it was it was there and we could actually access all this. So it has helped in a way. And I think in, in certain respects as well, just from ongoing things in the IBD clinic, the processors, we'd been... In, the, in previously, you know, conducted patient satisfaction surveys and suggested to some patients because the clinic was so oversubscribed and busy, maybe we could move some appointments to virtual. And there was always a bit of resistance because people don't like change. Whereas now, because the change has almost been forced upon people, then they're kind of happy. To, and now that they've actually had the telephone calls and the virtual appointments, people now don't want to come back into the clinic not, you know, only for certain things. I mean, what's your experience of, of that, do you think? I think one of the things that has been most challenging is the feelings of isolation as a patient that there, yes, you can go to a website and you can get information, but you're not part of a community. You don't see other patients like you do in a waiting room where you can talk to people and, you know, it's surprising the conversations that do happen when you're <laughs> waiting long hours in a waiting room. Um but I think and when, when you're just going to one static place and you're going to the website to get that information, I think that's why a lot of patients are turning to social media and that's why they're they're joining certain groups. A lot of these groups are not monitored or regulated in any way. Um, and certainly on certain social media platforms, um, you will get healthcare influencers who might not be giving the right um, accuracy of information in particular regards to treatment. So I wonder really how many other patients there are out there at this point in time who actually need to either review their medication, they need to discuss that treatment plan. How many other people are there like me who can't, we want to have those conversations, but actually we can't because there's no one to have them with. Yeah, and it's clearly really important to for, as, as well as giving people opportunity to access information themselves, for them to have a trusted healthcare professional that they can speak to often would be an IBD, IBD nurse or an IBD physician um, to be able to, you know, say, well, I've heard about this diet, what do you think? Or, is, you know, is this the right medication for me? Uh, so it's really important we make sure people have those opportunities as well. Uh, Kath, um, we'd like to move on to your story of uh, what's happened during the pandemic. Um, if you could tell us about that. Yeah, so um, so I've worked in my service for the last 15 years. Um, so I've worked as a consultant nurse for the last five. Um, so we're a tertiary referral centre. So we see lots of people who've got complex, unstable, predominantly Crohn's disease. Um, and I can remember, um, you know, looking back and thinking um, really about the implications of working with a lot of patients with immunosuppressed um, and, and kind of what, what, risk stratifications did we need to put in place to continue managing them in a safe environment and I think when I was thinking about that I never actually really thought that we'd ever stop doing outpatient appointments when we look back um, there was always that bit of disbelief that you know it might eventually go away but then clearly within a space of 10 days my service was really turned upside down so you know the some of the surgeons had disappeared some of the most of the consult, consultant gastroenterologists I work with disappeared um about four members of my team well there's five nurses in my team and four got redeployed um so it was really quite a, a challenging time whether you call it controversial or not um we literally found out what we needed to do on the same time as the 
general public did. So we had to kind of appear to be ahead of the game without having any additional time to kind of do anything. So I can remember, you know, changing vaccination guidelines came out Christmas Eve. That kind of ruined a big chunk of Christmas Eve because we were having to make sure that that information was given. I can remember kind of juggling my my daughter's birthday party, getting that over and done with within the space of our small family of three, but then having to go back and do some more work because we were having to get lists of shielding patients together. And I think one of the biggest things that I always remember from very early on was one of the the young lads that I was looked after for many years who I knew was coming for surgery. Um, and of all of a sudden, we've been working, we'd worked with the dietitians and the surgeons to get them a really good experience of what his surgical, surgical outcome would be, that it was suddenly stopped and halted. And I can remember him ringing and saying, you know, Kath, when, when's my surgery going to be? And he's just like, well, I don't, I don't know. Um, and I kept ringing him every week and we would carry on having that conversation of I'm just checking in to make sure that you're OK. Um, yeah, but when's the surgery going to be, Kath? And I was like, well, but there's no elective surgery. There's nothing that we can do. But unfortunately for him, his, his symptoms deteriorated quite a lot. Um, and in, we needed him to bring him into hospital because personally, I felt that was the only way that we could get, then get access to like urgent scans, bloods, getting him to see a doctor of some kind who was around. Um, so that was like, and then I can remember, so we used to do a lot of what we call um, preoperative optimization, where patients came in for six to eight weeks, nutritionally build them up. And we brought him in and tried to do the same during that time. And that was a time where he had no visitors in the hospital because none was allowed um and I think for me I used to pop in on the way into work just to make sure that he was kind of keeping it together and not losing the plot because of being so isolated but also lying in a bed where everything that was coming through on the news was the worst place to be was in hospital and that's supposed to be a safe place that's where that's why I do my job is to keep people safe. So that was huge. And then I can remember having to go and find a colorectal surgeon who then I managed to stalk him down because many of you know IBD nurses were quite persistent folk. Um, up in ICU, dragged him down from ICU and said, I'm really worried. There's, there was a upper GI surgeon looking after the patient. Things weren't going quite right. And we kind of like tweaked things amongst ourselves, but it was literally out of passion and dog-earedness that we got patients what they needed to have done. And he went for surgery and, and the outcomes were okay. But it was just such a massive, nothing was the same. And, and when I look after that patient now, he's so um, traumatised by his experience. It's affected the way that he relates and communicates to the IBD team. He's very angry, which is understandable. But also I'm really angry because it wasn't my fault and we kind of stuck in the middle. So I think um, when you reflect back, what I've learned is it's so important that people know who are looking after them. And I think Kelly's scenario earlier, kind of just having that person that's that person that's on the end of the phone or popping into a room when you're not well um, really is, is, is so important. And I think that's where we've got to get back to. Um, I think virtual 
reviews have been okay for a bit, but we now need to put faces back to healthcare so that people start to trust us again. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's um, face-to-face interaction. I think different services are reintroducing that at different rates. I I think we talked earlier about the fact that for some patients, at least, um, greater access to video and phone is a good thing. Um, Certainly our patients would sometimes drive for an hour, spend 45 minutes trying to find a car parking space for a five-minute, yes, I'm fine kind of checkup, which I don't think was a terribly good use of their time. Um, But clearly some of those difficult discussions around surgery, but also when patients are first diagnosed, there's something about sort of face-to-face interpersonal interactions. And as you say, there's a component of, you know, meeting other patients as well. It can be quite an isolating condition. Um, I think access to services was very difficult early on in the pandemic. Um, Endoscopy as well. Um, We were sort of having to make provisional diagnoses without actually scoping people because we had no access to endoscopy. I think it was a real uh, challenge. Um, Kay, did you have sort of similar experiences of difficulty with accessing sort of services that we'd almost taken for granted in the pre-pandemic period? Definitely. Um, Organising any sort of imaging was was really difficult. Things like your MDT meetings were completely different. There was a much smaller team um, and everything was remote. So, you know, that that kind of, and then sometimes there was poor connection or the systems weren't working. And so then you had to dial in and, you know, so it was, it was tricky, definitely. And it, it was, yeah, just, just difficult trying to get things organized for the patients that you knew needed that extra level of support because you were like between a rock and a hard place where exactly what Kath said, where you just knew that you needed to try and help, but then sometimes couldn't actually do it because there was there was no endoscopy available and you had to just think on your feet and try different things and you know use different ways of assessing patients but I think I can remember the first time I saw a patient face to face in the clinic after after a while it was just it was just amazing just to actually have that face to face interaction and to to see patients and to to speak to people that you haven't seen for a long time because it, it's it's difficult, especially when we didn't do video calls, we just did phone calls. So we didn't actually ever even see patients when we were, when we were doing that. And so it, was, it is a completely different interaction, I think. And, you know, you did get a lot of feedback from patients saying that they felt that in some ways it wasn't as thorough, the consultation. Because I think the physical examination clearly has a role sometimes in the examination of IBD patients, but actually outside of perianal disease, it probably rarely changes our management very much. But it's more about that layer of communication in terms of body language and uh, so forth that you lose. And I think um, for MDTs as well, perhaps um, virtual meetings, I think are sometimes quite efficient at getting things done in a sort of transactional way. I think they're less useful for the kind of other conversations that perhaps go alongside that. And I think for in an MDT setting, that's important for team building. I think in a in, in a patient healthcare professional communication, it's really important for building that trust relationship and so forth as well. Uh, and again, I think that's particularly important at tran- important transition points in patients' lives or where there's an important change in treatment or whether a new diagnosis. Um, do, did you have any experience of sort of telephone or video interactions as a patient prior to the pandemic or was it always sort of face-to-face up until that point? It's always been face-to-face, yeah. Um, I I mean, GP appointments um, have been have been both. So sometimes there's been, um, I think there's been maybe two over the past few years. 
um, prior to COVID that have been video calls, but the majority of them have just been um, have just been face to face, which I actually I prefer. Um, it just makes you feel like you're connected to somebody on a human level. Um, and I think during the pandemic, a lot of the well, all of the news that was focused around the accounts of HEPs was very much in relation to treating COVID. What patients didn't hear that I think probably they should have done that would have been very helpful is to understand what about every other service? What about every other department? And what are those HEPs experiencing? Because as you quite rightly said, that patients feel like they're angry. And if they understand it from someone else's perspective, you put things into context and you don't feel the anger because you realise it's just another human being doing their best, going to work just like you are and trying their best. Um, but I just don't think that came across in the way that it was handled in the media as well. Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, as we've already talked about, actually quite a lot of the healthcare professionals who would have normally been managing other conditions were called away to manage uh, COVID instead. And so suddenly you're trying to deliver a service where there's increased anxiety and concern among, among patients and fewer people to deal with it. But perhaps that wasn't always um, communicated. And I think um, you can see certainly see where the anger of your patient would come mm. from. Uh, I think it's um, and and, and the, the delays in elective surgery, of course, are still an issue now. Um, most elective aspects of services are still in recovery mode and uh, non-cancer surgery is often still quite long waits compared to what it might have been pre-pandemic. Is that? And yeah. I, I think that's that's very much so. Um, but I do think the way that we work as an MDT since COVID, um, I, th I think we're not as willing to sit on people probably as much as what happened before. Um, so we, we're trying to get back to that proactive medicine that we've mm. lost because it is very much reactive. We're waiting for, for like Kelly to ring in and tell us we've got a flare rather than checking whether Kelly's heading towards a flare first. Um, and I think what what the MDT and going virtual and making sure it's uh, regular and that, you know, I've, We've all got a voice. So I feel very much, much more confident that I can say I've got this patient that doesn't seem to be um, to, doing too well. What do I need to do? But because we're sitting there and, and the surgeons and the medics are there, you know, the surgeon knows who's, got, who's on the horizon and coming mm. in. And similarly, you know, we have changed a lot of pathways. So perianal disease, for example, um, we can't, we can't leave those patients. So we've now looked at new ways of getting hot clinics and hot slots for patients to get in. Um, so I do think, I think there's a lot of emergency surgery that probably was could have been elective um, and supporting that group of patients is a real challenge. But I think the other is going back to the, um, to the virtual world and, and maybe Kay will come in on this is, um, a lot of underreporting of symptoms on on the helpline. I think as an IBD nurse, we're quite quite good at managing the helpline, um, and and the kind of particularly the young lads are the ones that really worry me. You know, I might lost a little bit of weight, Kath, but actually when you bring them to clinic, it's a good 10, 15 kilos of weight they've lost. And without seeing people, he wouldn't, I would have took that as, as an inexperienced nurse that that wasn't a concern. So I do think there needs to be some involvement and get engagement back with patients now to kind of, so we do need, it's been too long to kind of stay in the virtual world. We need to, to be senior again so that we know that you're okay and then we can 
look at what we do for follow-up over the, ne the next couple of years then. I think it's important we take what we have learned around use of technology and use of virtual forwards though as well because our the number of IBD patients is although, although the incidence is roughly stable the prevalence is going up we're going to hit one percent in the next decade or so in the UK and so we're going to have a growing um, population of patients who've been on more and more different combinations of medications and so forth and dealing with that complexity without a massive increase in workforce we are going to have to be smart about the way we do things I think um, the, the experience in Oxford of using their sort of remote um, patient monitoring tools and and in Salford actually as well, um, have even pre-pandemic, but perhaps sort of moving with what we've learned in the pandemic as well, do give us some uh, ways of trying to stratify patients into those who are at highest risk of, of flare and progression where we need to see them face-to-face -face, and those where perhaps we can give longer intervals between face-to-face -face appointments. Is that would, would you agree with that, Kay? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, with the new technology, it, it has opened up different ways of kind of managing patients and I think especially it, it's good to be able to triage I suppose what patient you know or give patients the option of how they would like to be followed up and maybe have a system of well if you if you're well and you don't need a face-to-face -face interaction or maybe just have that face-to-face -face interaction once a year and then the rest of it will be virtual and you can kind of go in and out of both methods really and I think because the prevalence, you know, is, is increasing. You know, we've got an increased population and I think it's exactly right what you're saying, Nick, that we do need to have the best of both options to kind of manage that, really. Yeah. Kelly, as a patient, what do you think about that kind of model where you have a, you try and, we try and engage people who want to engage digitally um, and who are well in that way and we try and uh, preserve, I guess, face-to-face -face appointments for those who are sickest or who can't engage with other mechanisms? Yeah, I think patients ultimately want to feel like they have some kind of control over their own healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as we know from um, the whole kind of Dr. Google um, last few years. Um, so I think as long as patients feel like they're being asked and they're being consulted and given that choice, it makes them feel like they have that empowerment. And, you know, alongside the kind of credible resources, knowing where to go, having a sense of community. I do think there's other technology which we haven't yet explored that would give that sense of community so virtual reality and um in in the future as we kind of enter life in the metaverse for example that's going to be very interesting as to the impact that that has on healthcare as as a system but also to patients because we are moving into an increasing you know virtual and digital world um and i think patients will either embrace that or certainly embrace it when they need to because there's distinct advantages of that however there's still the times like you quite rightly said Kay where patients are going to want to go and see somebody face to face. I mean, I, you talked earlier about sense of community I think um, most hospitals will have some form of local um, support group for patients I think it's been quite difficult uh, maintaining that during the pandemic period, uh, certainly locally, we have it has gone virtual. I think that suited some people quite well, um, but I think it's it has been a different type of interaction to what it was um, before the pandemic. And it's how we can, in this sort of period, as we we still have in healthcare settings at least quite a lot of restrictions uh, about people gathering together. How we can try and rebuild those support networks um, locally. Kath, have you, what's been the experience for sort of patient support groups been like near you? I just don't think there has been any. Um, and, you know, for, for, for years we ran um, a patient education programme at a local hotel where 
we would have regular 60, 70 patients that would turn up on a Saturday morning um, and it was just stopped. Um, so although we've, we've tried it virtually, it's about getting those messages out that that is available. Um, but there's always that quiet person that sat on the back row that actually probably wouldn't engage with the virtual world. Um, and I think you also have to understand uh, people's health literacy as well. Um, not everybody, I mean, 80% of the, uh, the UK has a smartphone, but then 20% doesn't. Um, and which are the ones that are likely to struggle with their inflammatory bowel disease? It's probably the 20% of people who don't have the, the IT available to them. Um, so, so, yeah, I, th I think it is something that we need to probably step up. But to be honest, it's not a priority in the service because um, we've got to get outpatient clinics back up and running so that we can make sure that people are well and then the add-ons will come later on. Yeah. But I agree, uh, inclusion is really important and making sure we don't have digital exclusion where uh, where people can't access services if they don't have a certain piece of technology or, or, or aren't comfortable using it. But I think it's about trying to, I guess, optimise our use of all of it to try and have a service for all. I think we, we've talked about quite a lot of um, areas today. We've talked about the disruption to services and about how different services around the country are uh, pulling things back together and, uh, and trying to recover their uh, elective work. We talked about the impact on, on patients in terms of shielding and social isolation uh, in terms of access to information and access to services. We'd like, to, we'd like to reassure people with inflammatory bowel disease that the disease itself doesn't seem to increase the risk of severe outcomes from COVID-19 and that it's really important that they engage with their healthcare professionals in managing their flares and maintaining their condition long term. I think in terms of vaccination, vaccinations have really changed the, the, the journey of the pandemic in many ways and have allowed us to return to more normal life. I think it's important that patients with inflammatory bowel disease know that vaccinations perhaps at least as important, if not more so for them, and that it's important they take the additional doses of vaccinations um, offered. Um, I think in terms of access to information, uh, clearly it's been difficult for places where the services have been much less available. I think Crohn's and Colitis UK do provide a national point of contact for patients. They've got a support line, uh, which is a really helpful resource, and it's available to anyone with inflammatory bowel disease. But I also think it's important patients understand what they're, what's available to them in their local service and proactively seek out whether there is an IBD helpline they can access and so forth as well. And Crohn's and Colitis UK, again, can signpost them towards that. I think as patients with inflammatory bowel disease return to work, it's important they're aware of their rights as employees in terms of being able to access uh, appropriate adaptations to their um, their disease and, and any ongoing concerns around their vulnerabilities around COVID as well. Um, and again, Crohn's Colitis UK have important um, work-related information on their website, which can be a helpful uh, uh, resource to look at. So Kay, is there one thing you think clinicians can do to help their patients with respect to this period of recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic? So Nick, I think it's, you know, the whole episode over the, the issues over the last two years have been quite traumatic for healthcare professionals and also patients as well, really. So just into a new normal and, and how to kind of, you know, circumnavigate kind of how things have changed recently. I think the one thing to change is maybe just the communication. And I think that I think that's the one thing that that everybody needs to kind of get back on track with as you kind of said earlier um 
patients seeking out their advice lines again, making contact with the IBD service. If they haven't been seen in clinic for a while, making contact and getting those appointments, just getting a review. Um, and from healthcare professionals' point of view, I think, you know, as the services are starting to get back to some sort of normal, getting like face-to-face consultations as well for those patients who need it. Excellent. Thanks very much. So I'd like to thank all of the guests who've joined me here today, uh, Kath, Kelly and Kay, um, for your experience and your wisdom um, as we've been talking about COVID. Uh, Hopefully you've enjoyed uh, the podcast and look out for other episodes in this series to come. If you are having any problems with respect to your inflammatory bowel disease, please do get in contact with your healthcare provider. Thank you for listening. Other podcasts are also available in the series More Than Guts, which are organised and funded by Bristol Myers Squibb.